listening to on human rights where we bring you interviews with experts and others about human rights and international humanitarian law on human rights is broadcasted from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute on human rights and international humanitarian law in Lund Sweden I'm Sandra Jacobson today's podcast is focusing on children in the context of the international refugee law it is presented to you by Dr Jason Popjoy He is a barrister at Blackstone Chambers and an experienced lawyer who works with human rights law, refugees and immigration law. This presentation took place during the launch of his book, The Child in International Refugee Law. Thank you very much and, and many thanks to uh, both the discussants uh, today in advance and, and also to both institutes for the Uh, invitation to come and speak today. I, I, I was particularly excited about the fact that it was a joint invitation because what is at the heart of my book um, is is the need for greater interaction and greater alignment between these areas of law, international law and the rights of the child uh, and international human rights, international refugee law. So uh, I think it's particularly apt that the, that the invitation came from both institutes. And, and, and once again, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I, I want to do two things uh, in, and hopefully it'll be about 30, 30, 35 minutes that, that I'll be speaking, just to leave uh, lots of time for discussion. The two things I'd like to do is first, I want to talk about two recent cases that, that I've been involved in. As well as working as a, a legal academic, I, I also practice as a barrister out of a, a Blackstone Chambers in London, and my practice is uh, to a large extent in refugee law and human rights law. So I want to talk about two cases involving child refugees, uh, and I want to do that because I think it helps breathe life into some of the uh, legal issues that I'll then go on to discuss. The second thing I want to do is to talk about the role that international human rights law, and in particular the Convention on the Rights of the Child, might have to play in determining the status of refugee, um, the, the status of claims brought by refugee children. Before, before I do those two things, I, I want to start with two apologies. Uh, and the first apology is that my talk uh, or my introduction today is going to be very much based on the research that I undertook for my, for my book. And that uh, involved a review of case law from the five big common law jurisdictions. So the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Rather embarrassingly, before I came today, I did a kind of control find of the electronic version of the book for the word Sweden. And it only came up four times, and I was quite ashamed by that. And I'm, I'm raising as an apology now that I'm going to be focused on um, those five jurisdictions, when I say today. But what I'm really interested in, um, and hopefully it will rise both from the, the discussants, but also any questions you have, is to see how the argument that I develop would actually translate into what's happening on the ground here in Sweden for those that, um, that, that are involved in these issues. The second apology, which I always make before I deliver a lecture, is that I am a lawyer. And I appreciate that not all of you will be lawyers, thankfully. And uh, so I'm trying, I will try to cast this in non-legal language, but please forgive me if I do occasionally um, uh, diverge into legal speak. So starting then with the two case studies, The first story that I want to tell you is about a six-year-old albino boy from Nigeria. And I'll refer to him as N.A. And N.A. applied for asylum in the United Kingdom with his mother, J.A., on the basis that he would be subject to persecutory harm if he was returned to Nigeria on account of the fact that he was an albino child. Uh, and the, the mother claimed that she too would be discriminated against on the basis that she had, an, she was the mother of an albino child. The claim was refused in 2013 by the original administrative district decision maker. 
It was then appealed to the first year tribunal, which is the first level of merits review, uh, and the claim was dismissed, so it was rejected. There was then an appeal to the upper tribunal, and it was also rejected. And the first tribunal, the first tier tribunal, accepted that NA was albino. It accepted that there was background evidence and expert evidence showing that albino people are subject to widespread discrimination in areas such as education and employment, and that they're often ostracised by the family and their communities. The tribunal accepted that there was a risk of, uh, of albinos being killed as part of, um, to, to, to take their organs because they th were thought to have um, special properties. It accepted the evidence that um, uh, he could be targeted at school by both students and staff. It accepted that there was evidence uh, that um, staff at other schools had punished albino children by sending them outside to stand in the sun. But this is what it decided, it held. Uh, the mother and her son are likely to be stigmatised and discriminated against as a result of NA's um, uh, status as an albino. NA would suffer from ongoing discrimination and would have far worse life chances in Nigeria over and above the conditions that other children face there. The tribunal went on to say that the crux of the assessment was whether the level of ongoing discrimination and the risk of serious harm from ritualistic abuse is sufficiently serious to cross the threshold to amount to persecution. The judge held that, although he acknowledged it was serious, the risks that NA would face just fell short of that threshold. And I'm going to return to what happened in that case uh, later in the talk. Uh, the second story also involves a mother and son from Nigeria. In this case, it was a 45-year-old Nigerian woman who had a five-year-old son. And the mother had serious mental uh, health issues and had tried to commit suicide on a number of occasions. Um, uh, by um, uh, drinking, um, I think it may have been rat poison, um, to, to try to kill herself and it also threatened the life of her child. So much so that uh, the child was taken, um, taken away from the mother and put uh, in foster care. The government, so she, she was uh, as I said, uh, and uh, she, she was an asylum seeker. Her refugee claim had been rejected, but the government um, didn't deport her while her child was in foster care, because that would have involved the separation of mother from child. It was very thoughtful of them. As soon as the child got returned to the mother, so after about two years, the mother was, was, had gone through therapy, um, there was a determination that the child could go back to the mother in large part because of the support network that they would have around them, both within the school, the foster family had said they would continue to provide support and the, the mother had a circle of friends that were going to provide this support network. Within days of the son being returned to the mother, uh, the, the Home Office turned up and deported both mother and child to Nigeria. There was no individual consideration of whether the child might be a refugee in his own right, and there was no consideration of the best interests of the child and whether those interests would be served by um, sending the mother and child to Nigeria. So again, I'm going to come back to that, that, that story as I, as I go through um, the, the legal framework. So Moving on then to the relationship between the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the Refugee Convention, which is, which is the focus of my book. Uh, I anticipate that the Convention on the Rights of the Child needs very little introduction to this audience. It was adopted in 1979, 1989, um, in force in 1990. It's the most widely ratified human rights treaty, and the United States is currently the only outlier, the only state not to have ratified the Convention. It applies to each child within a state party's jurisdiction and prohibits any discrimination irrespective of the child's or his or her parents' or legal guardian's birth or other states. What this means is that the rights 
contained in the CRC therefore apply to all children in the jurisdiction of a state. They apply to refugees, they apply to asylum seekers, they apply to failed asylum seekers. And these subcategories of children are entitled to the same protections, the same protections under the CRC as any other child within the state's jurisdiction. And this point has been emphasised by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, uh, which has stated the principle of non-discrimination in all its facets applies in respect to all dealings with separated and unaccompanied children. It prohibits any discrimination on the basis of the status of a child as being unaccompanied or separated or as being a refugee, asylum seeker or migrant. So in circumstances where we have this instrument, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the most comprehensive the most authoritative instrument dealing with the obligations that a state owes to a child. It seems to me, just as a, a matter of basic common sense and logic, that it has a, must have a very important and arguably central role to play in any uh, determination or any decision concerning refugee children. So my book, uh, the rather ambitiously titled the child in international refugee law was built on a hypothesis that these two bodies of law, international refugee law, international law on the rights of the child, have an enormous capacity, an enormous unrealised potential to enhance the protection of refugee or, or of displaced children. But what wasn't clear to me when I started uh, researching for the book was what this framework might look like. We had a number of bodies, organisations, academics, certainly the UNHCR had for a long time recognised the need for interaction between these two regimes, but no one had set out in any detail what that might look like. And I said, well, it's one thing to say, well, of course, you must take into account the Convention on the Rights of the Child, but what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? So my, my project, my book project, was to try to fill that gap and to provide a roadmap that uh, would hopefully enhance the protection of this particularly vulnerable category of refugees. So uh, with my hypothesis in mind, I, I uh, started with a comprehensive review of national case law to try to identify the key problems and how to resolve those problems. I reviewed two and a half thousand decisions involving refugee children across all levels. So starting at the first tier tribunal, the, the, the merit review tribunal level, all the way up to the ultimate appellate courts. And it was apparent to me that there were two key issues. The first was invisibility, a failure to consider a child as a refugee in his or her own right. And the second issue was incorrect assessment. Even in cases where there was an independent consideration of a child's claim, there was a failure to interpret and apply the Refugee Convention in a manner that, take, that took into account the fact that the applicant was, in fact, a child. And both, both of these issues can have really debilitating consequences, and I see this often in my practice. Um, on a refugee, because either if you don't, if you treat a child as invisible, or that if you then, even if you treat them as visible and incorrectly assess them, the consequence is that that child may be returned to a risk of very serious harm. So, having identified these issues and um, spent almost a year reading and categorising this uh, case law, I started thinking about, okay, well, how could I? Um, uh, what role can the CRC play? Uh, what what, 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 what's the framework um, that we can start viewing these protection claims within? And I identified three contexts which I defined as modes of interaction where I thought that the Convention on the Rights of the Child might appropriately be engaged uh, to, to determine the status of a refugee child. And if it just digress just very briefly here, my book's very much focused on, on the determination of status. 
I, I don't go and then look at once you become once you're recognised as a refugee or once you're domestically recognised as a refugee, all of the rights that you're entitled to under the Convention Rights of the Child. That will be another book for another day. This is very much just focused on status. So when I talk about these three contexts, it's very much in that limited um, in that lim within that limited framework of determining status. So the first of the three modes of interaction is the use of the Convention on the Rights of the Child as a procedural guarantee um, to introduce additional safeguards into the refugee determination process. The second mode of interaction was the use of the Convention on the Rights of the Child as an interpretive aid to inform the manner in which the Refugee Convention is interpreted and applied to cases involving kids. And the third, uh, and this really only came, this, this was one of those things where um, the, the project really evolved as, as, as I did the research, which is of course what's supposed to happen, um, uh, is the use of the Convention on the Rights of Child as an independent source of status. So stepping outside the international refugee, refugee regime and thinking about how the Convention on the Rights of the Child might provide an independent source of status um, without, without reference to the Refugee Convention. So those three modes of interaction really provide, provided the structure for the book. Uh, and, and I'm going to just briefly address the three of them, so to give you kind of just a very um, high-level overview of what's covered uh, in the book. So turning first to the Convention on the Rights of the Child as a procedural guarantee, and this is dealt with in chapter two of the book. As at least some of you will, will no doubt know, the Refugee Convention is largely silent on the procedures that a state must implement in designing a domestic system of refugee status determination. By contrast, the CRC contains a number of provisions that may inform the determination process. The CRC may, for instance, be relevant to the age assessment procedure, guardianship and care arrangements, the provision of legal assistance, interview and courtroom concessions, and uh, the particularly vexed issue of the detention of children throughout the determination process. This afternoon, though, I just want to focus, um, focus specifically on the requirements set out under Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, which is often referred to as the right to participation. Uh, and it's the, the, the provision that provides that a child must have an opportunity to, opportunity to express views freely in matters affecting them and be heard in judicial and administrative proceedings. But before I turn to Article 12, I just want to do a bit of scene setting as to why I think that recourse to Article 12 is quite important in cases involving refugee children. So in my case law review and just review of state practice more generally, it became clear to me that uh, children are very often not looked at uh, in refugee claims. And for a while there was quite a lot of focus on, and there still is quite a lot of focus on unaccompanied children, which obviously raise a whole number of different issues regarding invisibility. But for the most part, certainly in the jurisdictions that I reviewed, there were better systems um, in place to identify those children. and. Uh, they were entitled to apply for refugee status on uh, their own account. Where I found invisibility most striking, but also there was a real gap in the academic literature, was in the context of accompanied children. So children accompanied by family members. And this is a point that UNHCR had previously made, that children are often perceived as a part of a family unit rather than as individuals within their own right. So. My review of state practice showed that in claims involving families, it's very often the case that the child's claim is simply subsumed into the claim of one of his or her parents, with the child's status flowing directly uh, from whatever the finding is in relation to mum or dad. And in many cases, well not in many cases, but in cases where the parent is granted refugee status, that obviously doesn't present a problem because protection will then flow down to the kids. Where it does present a problem is where the mother or father um, has been denied refugee status and the child is also automatically denied refugee status. Now this is notwithstanding the fact 
that the child may have a stronger independent claim for protection. So the child may, for instance, be um, at risk of a child-specific form of persecutory harm, female genital cutting, deprivation of an education, parental abuse, involuntary gang or military recruitment, or discrimination on account of being born in circumstances where they are perceived to be illegitimate. There may also be a protection gap if the parents are excluded by reason of the exclusionary provisions under Article 1F of the Refugee Convention. And in each of these scenarios, in the absence of an independent assessment of the child's claim, there is a possibility the child will be returned to his country of origin where there is a real chance that uh, he will be persecuted. Yes, he'll be with his family, uh, but that doesn't necessarily provide some comfort, much comfort. Uh, so as I was reading these cases, I found myself getting very frustrated and asking, why, given in the majority of jurisdictions, children do have a right to independently apply for refugee status? Why are all of these claims focused on the parents? So there is a whole, there are dozens and dozens of US cases, for instance, where the, the, the claim focuses on either the mother or the father, and the fact that they, um, if they are returned, um, back to their country of origin, they will be, be at risk of psychological harm because they will have to see their child subjected to female genital cutting. And so I'm putting my I said, well, why not just bring the claim on behalf of the child, that the child will be subject to female genital cutting? Why are you focused on the parents? And, and this arises in a whole, whole range of scenarios. And yes, it's quite clever advocacy, and, and certainly in, in at least some circuits in the US, that case is, that, that, that has succeeded, and, and fantastic creative legal advocacy has, has um, got protection for these families. But I spent some time over at the Harvard Immigration Clinic and, and asked, why, why are you doing this? Why are you focusing on the parents' claims? And the answer was very straightforward. It was in the US, and actually I, I now know that the same applies in the United Kingdom and Canada, uh, protection will flow down, i.e. if you can establish refugee status for the parent, the kids will also get refugee status, derivative refugee status. If you can establish refugee status for the kid, but not the parents, it doesn't go up. So the state will allow the child to stay, but will not allow, um, not allow the parent. So there were very clear, good, and sensible, pragmatic reasons um, for, for, for adopting this approach. So that's, that's the scene setting. Um, and so then how do I think that, that you can start using Article 12 and, and, and also the Refugee Convention to try to, to, to say, well, actually, it's not good enough to not look at the kid's claim. If the parent's claim has failed, you then have to go on and look at the kid's claim. So th there is a good argument, and those that are, um, have a background in refugee law will be aware of it, that. Uh, that removing a child without an individual assessment of their claim would give rise to a breach of the, um, the, the there is an implicit obligation in the reform obligation to actually undertake a status determination. So th th there's that limb. But I also think that there is a strong argument under Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which stipulates that a child has a right to be heard in any judicial and administrative proceeding affecting the child. So in the refugee context, that language is wide enough to cover both the original administrative decision-making process, but also then any, um, any subsequent judicial review of that decision. The provision also makes clear that decision-makers in courts or other administrative proceedings have a duty not just to hear the child, but also to afford them due weight having regard to age and maturity. Both UNHCR, UN Committee on the Rights of the Child have called attention to the significance of Article 12. Um, I won't provide you with quotes, they're, they're all in the book. Um, and it has increasingly found favour at the national level with domestic legislation, guidelines and judicial decisions explicitly engaging with these participatory obligations in the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, so how then might a state respect this Article 12 obligation? A number of jurisdictions, including Canada, 
New Zealand and several European jurisdictions uh, have implemented domestic procedures that require a decision maker to undertake a separate refugee status determination uh, for each individual child, irrespective of whether they are part of the family unit. So in Canada, all applicants are required to file an individual claim for refugee status, irrespective of whether the applicant is accompanied by the family member, and decision makers are statutorily obliged to, to, uh, to make a determination for each applicant. This does not require each claim to be heard individually, and in many cases, the child's claim will be heard jointly with the claims of family mem members, and it's literally just a case of uh, see above in terms of the, the, the basis of the refugee claim. But the Canadian courts have made clear, and there are some really wonderful decisions uh, from the Federal Court of Canada, that where a child's claim uh, is heard jointly with the family, a failure to consider the separate nature and basis of the child's claim will give rise to a reviewable error. And that will arise, for instance, where the parent's claim has been rejected and the decision maker then doesn't go on to individually consider the circumstances of the child. So the federal court has remitted cases where the initial decision maker failed to take into account the child's distinct risk of child abuse, sexual violence, discrimination, schoolyard beatings, forced military recruitment, and use as a human shield in civil conflict. There's a very similar system in, um, that operates in New Zealand. I should say uh, that there are a number of concerns with this approach, and the most significant is that it could potentially lead to the separation of uh, parents and children. So imagine the scenario that I was, I was just positing, which is parents' claim is rejected, and then, um, but then the child's claim has been accepted. Uh, and that is not a hypothetical concern, so in the book I I have several pages of giving um, examples of, of that exact thing happening. It might be um, mum's claim is allowed, dad's isn't, one of the siblings is allowed, the other siblings isn't. But what they do in Canada, and what seems to me a far more kind of principled basis to approach these claims, is they then have the separate administrative process which is based on the right to family unity, and in particular Article 9 of the Convention on Rights of the Child which concerns non-separation. And uh, and so if that, both in, in New Zealand and in Canada, if that situ situation was to arise, uh, the other family members would get status via family unity principles. So I, I don't think that a concern about um, finding, about family members having distinct forms of status can possibly provide a justification for sending everyone home if the parents uh, haven't um, satisfied the refugee definition. If I return to the case of RA, that provides a, a good example. So this was the this was the, the mother with the mental illness with the with the son, where they were both returned to Nigeria. There, the mother mother's refugee claim was on the basis of being a former prostitute, and she was concerned that she'd be at risk uh, if returned to Nigeria. And that claim was rejected. The child, in my view, also had um, had uh, had a strong, uh, a reasonably strong refugee claim on the basis of of being a child um, that would be uh, returned with a mother that that had a mental illness with no support network, um, and and potentially could uh, end up alone somewhere where they 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 don't speak the language. Uh, he also had um, developmental issues, so he had the mental capacity of a two-year-old. So there, there was an independent claim there. And, and if they had individually, uh, independently assessed the child's claim and found that he uh, was entitled to refugee status, then the mother um, could have got protection via, in the UK it would have been via Article 8 of the European Convention, Family Life Grounds there. I'm, I'm going very much into legal speak there. but. Uh, so in that case, I acted uh, for the Office of the Children's Commissioner, which I think you have just, just over lunch, I was hearing that you also have a similar, um, uh, an ombudsman here in Sweden. So they, they, serve, they, they serve a similar function, which is an independent body that looks at um, uh, compliance with the Convention on Rights of the Child. So I was instructed kind of the very last minute by the Office of the Children's Commissioner. They said, we want to instruct you to intervene in this case, to go in and make arguments on behalf of the child. And so what I did is I went in. We went in with really detailed 
submissions. Luckily, it was at last minute, and I could do a bit of cut and paste from my book. But uh, and argue that there had been a serious failing here because no one had looked at whether at whether the child had an independent refugee claim. Now, by this stage, when we were arguing, m mother and child were, in, were sitting in the airport in Nigeria. They'd just been dumped in the airport in Nigeria. They'd been given something like 60, equivalent of about 60 euros by the UK government and had just been left there. So, and we were trying to get an urgent injunction to, to compel the government to bring them back to the UK. So I don't know what, what it's like in Sweden. In, in the UK, uh, it's certainly not easy, but you, ha you can have reasonable prospects of stopping a deportation. It's incredibly difficult after deportation has happened to compel the government to bring, uh, bring somebody back to the UK because the courts will generally say, okay, well, even if there's been an error, just do the reassessment while they're, while they're still out there and, and only if, they have, if, if you succeed in showing that error, then, then they can come back. Um, the upper tribunal in that case uh, said, because the government's argument was, well, no one independent, no one put forward an independent claim. But we, we were saying there's a shared duty, duty of fact finding. There's a kid before you. The decision maker has an obligation to interrogate whether there is, there is possibly a claim. And, and that's what the upper tribunal found in that case. Notwithstanding no separate claim may be expressly advanced on behalf of the child, the circumstances may be such as to warrant independent treatment. And there's an onus on the decision maker to, um, to make sure that that, that assessment happens. So, so that's the first context, the, the CRC as a procedural guarantee. And it's really only looking at one aspect of it, the, 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 the participation of the child and the need to independently assess a child's claim. As I said, there are a whole bunch of other protections in the CRC that may be relevant to the determination um, processes and procedures that are in place. The second context uh, is the, um, the use of the Convention on the Rights of the Child as an interpretive aid. And th this is really the heart of the book. It's um, covered in chapters three and five. Uh, international law, international human rights law, has grown exponentially uh, over the last 60 years since the passage of the Refugee Convention. And many of the uh, relevant, uh, relatively nascent um, uh, precepts that are contained within the Refugee Convention have been re-articulated, re-contextualised and in many cases expanded in a comprehensive suite of international human rights treaties. There is widespread acceptance both at an international and domestic level that the open textured provisions of the Refugee Convention must take into account this broader human rights framework. In these circumstances, I argue, there is a clear and principled basis for drawing on the CRC, as I said, the most authoritative articulation of the obligations that a state owes to a child, as an aid to inform the Refugee Convention definition in claims involving children. Now, for those that aren't as um, familiar with the Refugee Convention, Article 1, Article 1A2 of the Convention defines who is a refugee. Uh, it is an individual who finds themselves outside their country of origin, has a well-founded fear of being persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. Uh, and where the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, I think the CRC may be relevant to, to many of those, uh, as many of the aspects of the Refugee Convention, but where it has particular, a particularly important role to play is in identifying what is persecutory harm in the case of children. The rights that are covered in the Convention on the Rights of the Child are tailored to take into account the reality that children experience harm in different ways to adults. Uh, in my view, therefore provides an automatic and principled means for adapting the persecutory threshold to take into account a child's heightened sensitivities and distinct developmental needs. Indeed, in circumstances where there is general agreement that international human rights law is relevant to the identification of what constitutes persecution in the refugee context, and where an overwhelming majority of states have acknowledged that children have a distinct set of rights as set out in the CRC, it becomes difficult, in my view, to justify a failure to engage in the right with the rights enshrined in the CRC when applying the being persecuted standard 
to kids. And the point has been strongly made by the Federal Court of Canada in what is one of my all-time favourite cases. It's called Kim versus Canada. And the, the Federal Court said this, if the CRC recognises that children have human rights and that persecution amounts to the denial of basic human rights, then if a child's rights under the CRC are violated in a sustained or systemic manner, demonstrative of a failure of state protection, that child may qualify for refugee status. Both, um, both UNHCR and UNCRC, the, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, uh, both uh, have adopted um, but both agree with that view. Uh, and it is also increasingly being acknowledged at a domestic level, both in guidelines produced by governments and in the jurisprudence of national courts and tribunals. Uh, and there are, uh, there are pages and pages of examples of these in the book. In terms of case law, I think the clearest endorsement uh, on, the CR on the use of the CRC in interpreting the being persecuted standard comes from Canada. Uh, the, the case that I've just cited, Kim versus Canada, it's a 2010 decision, and the, the, the court was asked expressly to consider what the, the question before the court was what is the impact of the CRC on the being persecuted, um, being persecuted uh, element of the refugee definition. And the government said, uh, went in very strongly and argued, the CRC does not amend the Refugee Convention. It does not amend the definition of who is a refugee. And the court said entirely correctly, well, that's right. Of course it doesn't amend the, the Met Refugee Convention. But it then said this, uh, to acknowledge that children have distinctive rights is not to graft additional rights onto the refugee definition, but it is instead to interpret the definition of persecution in accordance with the distinctive rights that children possess as recognised in the CRC. Therefore, when determining whether a child claiming refugee status fits the definition, decision makers must inform themselves of the rights recognised in the CRC. It is the denial of these rights which may determine whether or not a child has a well-founded fear of persecution if returned to his or her country of origin. Uh, this approach has been approved by a, a number of decisions in the Federal Court of Canada, and although less frequent, there are a number of decisions in New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and rather bizarrely also the United States uh, that have on occasion demonstrated a willingness to draw on the framework of the CRC. The, the US is perhaps um, the most interesting because they obviously haven't ratified the CRC, but um, uh, you can find online guidelines, quite comprehensive guidelines, issued to decision makers as a training manual uh, that's issued to uh, administrative decision makers on how to assess claims involving kids. And there's a whole section where it talks about the need to take into account the CRC when interpreting the being persecuted definition. It's, it's, it's more liberal than any other, other country, notwithstanding the fact that they haven't actually uh, ratified the CRC. I'm told it isn't applied very well, but, but it's, it's there. It, just, just to finish on this second mode of interaction, I'm going to return to the case of the Albino um, refugee boy, the six-year-old boy, uh, um, N.A. So here, as I said, the, the primary decision maker, the first tribunal and the upper tribunal, all held that uh, widespread discrimination having opportunities that will make him worse off than other children, uh, risk of um, being killed to get his organs, uh, lack of education opportunities did not satisfy the being persecuted standard. They said it fell just short. So I became involved in this case after the upper tribunal decision and there was an appeal to the Court of Appeal in the, in, in the United Kingdom. And so our starting point was uh, putting forward this argument that you have to take into account the Convention on Rights of the Child in, in determining what that persecutory threshold is. We're not saying the definition is different. We're just saying if you're a kid, you may be more likely to reach that threshold. We then gave a detailed analysis of the rights that were in play in this case. So discrimination right to education, which was key. Uh, so there was all of this evidence that albino kids just weren't going to school because they were too scared of being bullied and um, both by, by other students but also by staff. So these kids were effective, even though 
they weren't being banned from going to school effectively. Um, they were getting, having a de facto um, uh, uh, denial of education because uh, they, were, they were too scared to go to school. And also psychological harm. And, and here, obviously, the, the, the impact that these kind of things can have on a kid um, is far more significant than what it would have on an adult. And there is a lot of, a lot of case law, including from the human rights, uh, including decisions of the Human Rights Committee, talking about the fact that in interpret, interpreting whether persecutory harm, uh, psychological harm reaches threshold required to show, for instance, um, cruel and grating cruel and human degrading treatment, you've got to take into account the person's age and specific vulnerabilities. Uh, so we made all these submissions. I was very excited because in the United Kingdom, we've never had an appellate court um, determine this issue about uh, effectively the same issue that the, the federal court of uh, Canada had decided. And then three days before the Court of Appeal hearing, the government conceded the case. So we didn't get to argue it. Um, so we'll get our chance, but, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the government obviously are not excited about having um, that spelt out by, by, by a court. So that's the second mode of interaction. The third is, uh, is perhaps the most interesting, um, and I think maybe particularly interesting for this audience, and that's the use of the Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, as an independent source of protection. So here we step outside the international refugee protection regime and consider the extent to which the CRC contains complementary forms of protection that may provide additional safeguards to children seeking international protection. When people speak of complementary protection, they're often talking about the non-refoulement obligations, um, for instance, in the Refugee Convention or in um, the uh, Convention Against Torture or Article 6 and 7 of the um, Civil and Political um, Covenant. Uh, I think also Article 6 and 37 of the CRC are also very important and often neglected in cases involving kids because everyone assumes that they're exactly, that they just mirror the obligations under the ICCPR. That's not right. They're actually much broader in certain respects. Um, I, I don't want to go into detail on that, but I deal with it in some detail in the book. What, what I want to talk about this afternoon is Article 3 of the CRC uh, um, and the extent to which Article 3 might provide a complementary um, or perhaps more appropriately called an, an independent form of protection for kids. And again, I anticipate that Article 3 uh, probably doesn't need any introduction. Article 3.1 mandates that the best interests of the child shall be a primary consideration in all actions concerning children. This includes actions undertaken by public or private social welfare institutions, courts of law, administrative authorities, or legislative bodies. Uh, this is certainly wide enough to capture any decision made by an administrative official, tribunal, or court regarding the removal of a child from a state. Uh, importantly, the obligation under Article 3 attaches to all children falling within a state's jurisdiction, so a state cannot limit the application of the provision on the basis of a child's citizenship or immigration status. Uh, although it's widely accepted that Article 3 might be relevant uh, procedurally to the, pr um, the processes uh, that are applied to refugee children throughout the refugee determination process, uh, far more controversial is the suggestion that it may also be relevant to the substantive determination itself as to whether a child is in fact eligible for international protection. Uh, in my view, an assessment of the best interest of the child may, for instance, preclude the return of a child to, a, um, to her home country, notwithstanding the fact that the child may not be eligible for protection under the Refugee Convention. This argument is not, uh, is not a novel one. Uh, more than 15 years ago, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill suggested that the CRC may call for a total realignment of protection for child refugee um, applicants. In a submission that he co-authored, um, co he criticised the then draft, the first qualification directive for failing to engage with um, the relevance of Article 3 to kids. He submitted that in every decision affecting the child, the best interest of the child shall be a primary consideration and where children are concerned, a duty to protect may arise even absent any well-founded fear of persecution or possibly of serious harm. 
Both the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and UNHCR have also endorsed the argument that Article 3 may provide a new category of protected persons. The clearest affirmation is found in the Committee's General Comment Number 6, which provides that return to the country of origin shall in principle only be arranged if such return is in the best interest of the child. And according to the Committee, this determination should take into account the views of the child, the safety, security and socio-economic conditions awaiting the child upon return, the availability of care arrangements for the child, the child's level of integration in the host country, the child's right to preserve his identity. Um, the, and the desirability of continuity in a child's upbringing. The committee suggests that in exceptional circumstances, other considerations may override the best interest of the child, but stresses that such considerations must be rights-based and that non-rights-based arguments such as those relating to general migration control, control cannot override best interest considerations. So we have this academic um, endorsement for some time. We have this international institutional endorsement. And finally, although still very embryonic, uh, Article 3 is beginning to play an increasingly significant role at the domestic level in national courts. Um, although, as I hinted at earlier, there's been a general lack of enthusiasm at the domestic level surrounding the idea that Article 3 may provide an independent basis of protection, this is, uh, there are signs that this is starting to change. And you've really seen this in the UK. About four or five years ago now, the, U the UK previously had a reservation on the, the CRC, which was that it didn't apply to migrant children. Uh, so this argument wasn't available. Uh, as soon as that reservation was lifted, a whole bunch of creative lawyers started making these arguments that you can't return families or children because such return would be contrary to the best interests of the child. Um, uh, one of the, the uh, most famous of those decisions is a case called ZH, um, which is a decision of Lady Hale, of the, the now president of the Supreme Court. Uh, so, um, and, and the case of RA that I was, I was talking about provides a, a really good illustration of this. And th this is the case involving the mentally ill mother. And again, for the Office of the Children's Commissioner, um, we argued very, very strongly that not only had there been a failure to independently consider whether the child had an independent refugee claim, there'd also been no consideration of whether return uh, was in the child's best interests. And that argument was accepted. And we got an urgent injunction uh, compelling the government to return the mother and child within two days uh, um, uh, back to the UK so that a best, a best interest assessment could be undertaken. So he, he wasn't willing to, the judge wasn't willing to say, well, this is plainly contrary to the best interest of the child. The, the failing of the government was just the failure to actually undertake that exercise when there is this express obligation under Article 3 um, that, that it should be a primary consideration. So uh, the government um, appealed, we were in the Court of Appeal within, um, within a day, uh, appealed that decision and lost. And so uh, mother and um, mother and child are back in the United Kingdom now. And in fact, just two weeks ago, um, the best interest assessment was undertaken and, and, and I was told that, um, that mother and child are allowed to stay permanently in the United Kingdom. Uh, although the UK, uh, um, uh, there's been a lot of litigation in the UK on this point, a number of jurisdictions have for some time, and again, I'm apologising because I'm focusing on the, these common law jurisdictions, um, engage with the best interest principle in determining whether a child is entitled to some form of protection status. Senior courts in Canada, Australia, New Zealand have long recognised a decision involving the deportation or extradition of a child's parent must necessarily entail a consideration of the best interest of the child. In the US, there is a special status um, called special juvenile immigration status, which is based almost exclusively on a best interest assessment. Um, and a number of jurisdictions, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, and the United Kingdom have implemented discretionary humanitarian protection schemes that require decision makers to take into account the best interests of the child. And what I do in chapter six of the book is use 
because because it's such an embryonic area, I've gone and taken um, looked at looked at the way the best interest principle is used in all of these other areas to try to develop a framework for okay. Okay, Jason, you say that we have to look at the best interest principle. I'm sure some of you will say, well, it's a very flexible and unhelpful concept. So I try to really give it meat and say, well, what does it actually mean? And I try to provide a framework uh, for how you would actually apply the best interest principle in cases involving kids. It's a two-stage framework. First, you've got to ascertain what the best interests of the child actually would be. And then secondly, you've got to look at whether there are any kind of countervailing interests that can effectively um, uh, uh, mean that they can be, that those interests can be circumvented. Uh, I, I don't have time, it's a whole nother talk to actually set out that framework, but it's in, it's in chapter six. Um, the, the use of the CRC, this third mode of interaction, the use of the CRC as an independent source of protection is certainly um, uh, the most controversial, and I think it's also the, potentially the most far-reaching, um, uh, and it raises fundamental issues regarding the relationship between international refugee law and human rights law. And in the context of uh, claims involving children, I think it, it's arguable that it challenges the notion that the Refugee Convention is the cornerstone of the international refugee protection regime. Uh, I, I talked before about how my research evolved and, and I never envisaged kind of a chapter six dealing with the best interest principle. I was very much going to be focused on um, the, the use of the CRC as an interpretive aid. But, but I, I, I kept reading all of these cases that were not focused on the refugee definition but were focused on the best interest principle. And, and I could see that there was this shift, and particularly a, a, a shift amongst a lot of advocates just saying, well, first and foremost, these individuals are kids. So why are we pushing them through this refugee process? Why not just look at them as kids and not as refugees? Uh, and so then, then I developed chapter six, and I'll, I'll never forget, I was sitting um, talking with Guy Goodwin-Gill, who had kind of looked at the outline parts of the book, and he said, you realize, Jason, that your chapter six undermines chapters one to five of your book and um, makes them entirely redundant. So, well, thank you very much. But uh, he, Guy um, has long asked what the Refugee Convention adds from a protection standpoint. Uh, in a recent article he wrote, what is better protected through the Refugee Convention than through the CRC? Is there any aspect of need that might otherwise be missed? I'm not going to try to answer that. Um, up here, I, I don't have an answer to that. The, the pragmatic answer is that at a domestic level, uh, there is huge deference given to the Refugee Convention. It's often incorporated domestically. That is the framework uh, within which states are, are, are operating at present. Uh, and, um, and certainly at the moment, at a domestic level, it provides the most secure route to protection. But a, a principled answer, that's the pragmatic answer, a principled answer, as a matter of international law, um, why, why do we force kids to go through um, the, the, this refugee route? I think that's much more difficult, and um, it's certainly something that I want to think about a lot more. Uh, but I think the critical point, and certainly the conclusion of my book, is that um, at-risk children benefit from both the Refugee Convention and the CRC. And where the latter, i.e. where the Convention on Rights of Child provides greater protection, um, it can and should be applied, whether it's as the starting point or as the safety net at the end. Uh, what's critical is that it's not ignored. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Jason Popjoy, Barrister Blackstone Chambers, UK. My name is Sandra Jacobson, and this podcast was brought to you from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Stay tuned for more interviews regarding human rights issues. <laughs>